G'day everyone, welcome back to The Extras, my name is Jack. And I'm Raj everyone, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, great to be with you all here. Raj, it's been a, an exciting last Sunday that we've had, a new term, new series. Uh, we've got to open up the book of Joel for the first time on Sunday and we've got lots of questions that people have texted in, lots of people really keen to grapple with this part of the Bible. Before we get to them though, keen to, to hear from you, can you just remind us uh, where we were on Sunday, uh, what was happening and then what we heard from the word? Yeah, thanks, Jack. Look, in the circumstances of lockdown, which is not where anyone wants to be, um, we're thankful for technology, and I'm really thankful for the many people working behind the scenes that nonetheless enabled us to get into the Word of God. Um, and so we, we had planned for some time, and we did. We started a series in Joel, um, which is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, um, page 1115 in my Bible. Uh, that uh, may not help you too much. I'm sure you'll find <laughs> it. And, and look, Joel chapter 1, it really, I, I've named the series From Crisis to Victory to try to pick up the movement we see in the book of Joel uh, that really paints this picture of an extraordinary crisis in the opening chapter. Uh, it's, it's the scene of a locust plague and there's, you know, swarm after swarm after swarm of locusts that just destroy everything in their path. And one of the things in particular that is highlighted that is destroyed with ramifications um, is the the grain offerings and drink offerings are destroyed, which means that the people are no longer able to worship God. Mm. Um, in the Old Testament, of course, uh, the, the system of sacrifices and offerings was very much intrinsic to how people were, were to worship God. That's different for us. But for them, and there's this huge point made, I think, that people can't can no longer worship god in the way that they should it's not a cause of excuse for them it's a, it should be a cause of grief and that leads then into this this uh lament um, my bible even puts a heading in there so it's not in the original it's added in later a call to lamentation um very much tied up with this uh because mm. because of the judgment of god that's being poured out and the inability of people now to worship God with, with offerings, um, they should come before God and, and lament. Um, now, there's more to say in Joel, and I think this question kind of comes up in a few different ways. There's more to say in Joel, but but just I, I'm pretty keen that we just let chapter one sit um, and see what we can learn from it. And we end up with this deep grief, with this lament. Um, um, which, which of course, as I talked about on Sunday, really takes us, or took me to Jesus, uh, thinking about when Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, looking on the city and weeping. Yeah. And very much he is aware of the judgment of God coming on the people. He's aware that people have turned away from God, don't worship him, um, and that's really a cause of, 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 of great grief for Jesus. Um Perhaps only to be outdone just a few chapters later in, in the Gospels, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where this time Jesus' source of anguish is for the, is about the sins of the whole world, uh, which again is tied up with the judgment of God. That, that takes him to the cross. Um, um, now, look, we're going to come to victory in Joel, uh, but, but I'm just keen that Joel chapter 1 sits with us and does its work in our hearts and minds. Yeah, and thank you for helping us focus on that. And I think, as you said, we all see that in a few of the questions today. I think there is a sense of, but what about and what if? And I know, yeah, it's interesting. Joel does go on to answer many of the questions that this first chapter raises. But it, it's interesting, yeah. I mean, the way that we preach is we go chapter by chapter through the Bible. Often we are 
raising questions uh, that we're not going to answer on a given Sunday, but we will get there. Uh, and we'll, we'll dip into a couple of them now as well. So yeah, thank you for that. Really helpful. Yeah, big issues here, aren't there? Judgment and lament. Lots of things for us to dig into. And we've got a bunch of great questions. So let's get going on them. Uh, first question, someone has texted in, uh, are the locusts, the nation that invaded my land, a mighty army without number, verse six. So I might read verse six uh, as this person has just quoted it. It does say, after the locust bit, uh, a nation has invaded my land. This mighty army without number it has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. This person's asking, uh, was there also a real army with soldiers and battles and everything in addition to the locusts? Or is it meant to be ambiguous? Yeah, what's going on with that imagery? Yeah, thank you. I think this was an afternoon church and it's one of the questions we did address at afternoon church. And and look, you, you could deepen the question when we come into chapter two, which we're doing this coming Sunday, because chapter two... Uh, gives a vivid description of armies invading mm. and, and there is actually a debate um, um, you know are they two separate you know instances of judgment coming or are they the same thing and and either is possible I think my own leaning and I, I, I reserve the right to come back next Sunday after thinking more about it in chapter two and change my mind but my <clears> own leaning is um, they're two different descriptions of the same of the same judgment that's coming and the point is not the you know the uh, both are devastating um, and both both really point us toward the 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 destruction that will come with the judgment of god um and and you know those of us who remember back in english we, we learned about similes we learn about metaphors uh so it 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 may well be and this is my learning um just just helping us fill out the picture of what it might be like for locusts to come in this way by talking about the destruction of armies. So I think you end up at the same point. Um, um, you know, sometimes some of these issues can be a little academic, um, interesting nonetheless. Uh, but but look, if I had to pick one or the other, I would say they're not two different things. They're describing the same thing. Yeah, and there is something quite vivid about it. I, I certainly find that the idea that this is not just, a, you know, it's more than just an unfortunate natural disaster. Like these pictures of, you know, the Lord riding at the head of these, this army of locusts, that's the language of um, chapter two, verse 11. Like it's, yeah, it really captures the kind of the intent. And yeah, the, for me, it just shows you how vivid the destruction is. So yeah, beautiful imagery, if that is indeed what it is. So yeah, and, keen to hear where you land. Yeah, And look, different imagery, um, I suspect different imagery, just helping those of us who think differently. Mm. And, you know, in the same way as Jack, you and I and others preach and or in growth groups, we come up with different ways to try to break things down so the human mind can grasp. Um, my suspicion is that's what's going on here. Yeah. It's worth remembering that, uh, all those listening, as we go through Joel, you know, like most of the prophets, this is poetry and poetry is all sorts of vivid images. So I think often we, our minds are kind of quite literally want to latch onto just what's the point? Like what's the kind of the propositional truth here and often the prophets are trying to expand our hearts and minds by flooding it with these these vivid pictures yeah so it's good for us to let that you know let the text do that yeah thank you we'll keep going uh someone's asked is there any significance in the fact that the last time god used a locust plague was against the egyptians i take it this person's thinking back to exodus and the 10 plagues one of those is is locusts yeah any yeah. thoughts there yeah look i, I um it is interesting, both there in the Ten Commandments, 
sorry, in the in the ten plagues, and also here, the locust plagues are, are used as signs of God's judgment. Um, uh, if I may, Jack, there's actually a question coming up uh, that also just points out quite helpfully that we see locust plague in Revelation nine, mm. and and yes, it is relevant in in Revelation nine. Yes, it is relevant in you know the ten plagues, and the point is that. Uh, locust plagues are used by God on a number of occasions to to open up and just help us understand the shape of His judgment, um, and so it just seems to me that 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 that's the relevance that God is behind these activities. They're not just some you know some random event, and uh, be it in the ten plagues or be it in Joel one or be it in Revelation nine, um, it it you know that they are connected because because. Uh, because God's judgment is what sits behind each of them. Yeah, helpful. So you do have this thread of this picture of judgment through scripture. Um, a question that maybe this can lead us into, someone's asked how much of Joel 1 has already happened at the time Joel is writing and how much is still to come in terms of locusts and the day of the Lord and, and thinking about yeah. judgment here? Yeah, uh, an excellent question again. And and. I think even that, that little description, just of seeing the judgment of God, you know, being broken down for us, uh, and one of those images that of locust plagues, is just helpful. You know, that is, there's, it, it is a continual theme, and there's other pictures as well, like fire, for example. Mm. Um, the day of the Lord, we're going to really focus on that this coming Sunday as we hit chapter two of Joel. And, and the day of the Lord, as I understand and think about it, it is something that has begun, um, but but it's one of those now and not yet things. So it's come, and, and in particular in, in Jesus Christ, you know, the day of the Lord has come, but also um, there's still more to come, and and that is, that is going to happen when Jesus returns. Mm. So, you know, so I, I think I tried to use the language on Sunday of the day of the Lord has has started, um, and as it comes, it's going to be more like this. I mean, the the reason Joel one and Joel is given to us is so that we might move from crisis to victory, uh, and and part of the way that happens is just to paint the picture of what the day of the Lord will look like, um, but also what the day of the Lord has looked like. So it's a little bit of both. Um, and maybe the most helpful thing in, in that, all of that is for now not yet image of the day the Lord started. It's going to be horrific. We we also see signs of that in the current world in, in a whole lot of different ways. Um, but but all of those are, you know pale into insignificance when you think about what it's going to be like um, when the new earth and the new heavens come and the old earth and the heavens are destroyed, as the New Testament tells us. Mm, yeah, it's helpful. I think that yeah, one of the reasons i think this language can be confusing is i think we read the prophets and see the day of the lord and we're sort of expecting one single day like which is you know, on one level fair enough right because the prophets talk about the day of the lord and so you get the new testament and it's like well we're talking about multiple days because the day of the cross is one and the day of pentecost when the spirit's poured out seems to be another and yeah the last day so you can see the confusion and i think it's yeah helpful to see that what the prophets saw far off as this one day in its fulfillment and its realization turns out to be multiple days spread out across this age of you know this last age of, of the world and that's that's okay that's how the prophets work you know they were looking far ahead and from their point of view yeah it all looks like just this big cataclysmic future event 
and then in practice there's stages to it so yeah helpful to recognize the, the difference in perspective that we have from the prophets you know we're kind of within the day of the lord in a sense because we've seen the first fulfillment and we're waiting for the last whereas you know for joel writing you know 600 years before jesus or whatever it was all ahead so you can see why he would sum it up just as one day yeah so maybe in our terms it's a figure of speech um, mm. but the other thing jack what you just said is really helpful as well um and and just worth us reflecting that in our day and age maybe for the last couple of hundred years we have thought of time you know in very defined points of time mm. um whereas in 600 bc they didn't necessarily think of it like that um yeah, so, so there's just a bit of orientation to do to get into that. But also there's the, there's a bigger point the Bible's making that, as you said, Jack, we're now in this day that that is both now but not yet. Yeah, helpful. Someone's asking a bit about, I guess, thinking now about this age where we live between the cross and the last day. Someone's asked, does God physically devastate our world now, post-Jesus? Is there a correlation between disasters on earth and God's punishment for us in this age, as I guess there was in Joel's? Yeah, that's a very thoughtful question. Um, and I think the testimony of the Bible is, yes, there is. Sorry, I'm sure the testimony of the Bible is, yes, there is. And um, Jesus, in fact, talks about earthquakes and famines and so on, um, you know, as being signs that the last days are here, similar concept expressed slightly differently. Um, and then, you know, Romans 1 talks about the same kinds of things in the different ways as God's punishment has already come into the world. I think the, the challenge here is we know that because sin is in the world, um, there's all kinds of consequences which we look at and it, 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 they're devastating you know i think we also see it um, um relationally we see consequences between us and other people within families and um relate you know marriage relationships and so on but i think we just need to be a little bit careful moving from seeing those things to saying sin has caused those particular things Sin is in the world, you know, in general terms. And, and look, I think of it in terms of going back to, um, you know, the, the, the massacre down at Port Arthur a number of years ago now. I think the movie's mm. about that, which is maybe what's in my head. And, and, you know, so you saw one gunman who caused devastation to a number of people. And it wasn't necessarily the sin of individual people that led to them going through such trauma. It was the general nature of sin being in the world that meant they got caught up in that. Yeah, so I'm hearing you say, yes, there's still this connection between disasters and sin, but it's not as neat as in, you know, this specific thing that happened is punishment upon this particular sin. That's right, yeah, and I'm happy if you want to expand on that, Jack. Um, but that you've just summed up what I was trying to say. But yeah, what what do you want to add, mate? Um, I guess yeah, I think that that is this important strand of what the New Testament says reflecting on these issues. Like I always think of John chapter nine, and people are asking Jesus, this blind guy, you know, who sinned that he was born blind? Was it 
him or was it his parents? And Jesus says, neither. This happened for, you know, the glory of God as he goes on to heal him. So you got there this statement by Jesus that, yeah, it's not as easy as just this person sinned, therefore this disaster. I guess one of the things that pushes you the other way is um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 always strikes me. So you have there the Christians in Corinth and some of them um, engaged in this abuse of the Lord's Supper. You know, some of them are eating and getting ahead of the others and other people hungry. And Paul says this striking thing. I'm just looking it up now. 1 Corinthians 11 uh, verse, oh, where is it? 30? Yeah. Um, though, sorry, verse 29. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, by which he means died, I take it. So I find that interesting that in this case, in Corinth, Paul's happy to say to the Christians there, because of this way you're mistreating each other in the Lord's Supper, some of you have fallen sick and some of you have died. Like that does seem like a pretty um, clear relation between, you know, the sickness and death and the particular sin that he's identified there. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that passage? Yeah, look, I think I think it's just an illustration of what we're talking about here, Jack. And and I so so yes, in the Bible, sometimes um, particular instances of punishment are connected with people's particular sin. I think the caution I'm just wanting to issue is I, I think it's pretty challenging for us to know um, yeah. if if that's the case, and it it may well be the case. Um, I think either way, though, it, it ends up, you know, all of these things happen in, in a sense to foreshadow the ultimate judgment that is to come mm. when a person will be held accountable. And we see that in, you know, um, Hebrews 9, 27, you know, every every man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Um, and that's then connected back with the day of the Lord um, coming to its full realisation. And when that happens... Hebrews 9.27 is exactly the case. Jesus will be the judge. We could have gone to Acts 17 on Sunday as well that talks about Jesus being appointed to be the judge. Yeah. Um, but I do in this world just... Those things, you know, 1 Corinthians 11 and other places, they, they, they do sometimes talk about a more direct connection. Mm. Um, but I, I'm just quite... I would hate for anyone to, to kind of... You know, go to someone and say, this has happened to you because. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really important for us to caution that. Yeah, because Jesus makes it clear that it's not always clear cut. And we're, yeah, we're, we're now reminded if we think it is. It makes me think of, I mean, Jesus in Luke uh, 13, when the, the Tower of Siloam collapses and there are people who die in this, you know, terrible um, building disaster. And he says, you know, were they more sinful than anyone else? And he says, I tell you, no. But unless you also repent, uh, you will perish. Yes. And he says disasters are there to sound the alarm bell that, yeah, judgment is coming. And so when it happens, it's not, it's not about pointing a finger and blaming anyone, but any disaster is a reminder to us that sin is in the world, judgment's coming, and we need to repent and find forgiveness, which I guess is similar to Joel 1 in a way as well. It's the, the locust plague is sounding the alarm bell of the, the day of the Lord to come, isn't it? There's a similar kind of idea there, I think. That, that's exactly the point of the crisis of highlighted in the first couple of chapters. Yeah. yeah. Good for us to spend some time fleshing that out. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, we'll keep coming on. Uh, moving away from thinking about uh, disaster particularly, one person's got a, a question about worship. Um, so, Raj, you were helping us think about, you know, the, the people there, their, their grain, their 
drink offerings. That's the kind of thing that the locust plague prevents them doing as they come to worship God. One person's asked, has the essence of worship changed with the coming of salvation at the cross? And this person highlights a number of verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, talks about us offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Um, so this person's, I guess, asking, yeah, for us, this side of, of Jesus in the New Testament, yeah, how do we think about worship now and how that might relate to what we're seeing in Joel? Yeah, thank you. Um, um, a great question once again. And, and look, I think I would say the essence of worship has not changed, but the way in which it's expressed has changed. Mm, and as yeah, we, I'm um, yeah, as we come into Joel, so, you know, the end of chapter two and um, James Chen's going to be preaching this one and another one as well. So I don't want to steal his thunder too much, but I think it starts to nail the essence of worship and the essence or, or the lack of worship and, and the essence of the problem that's going on in Joel. Um, and so if, if I just come to ver chapter two, verse 32, um, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance as the Lord has said even among the survivors whom the Lord calls and then we come to 3 verse 17 so this is looking on the other side of a victory and it says then you will know that I the Lord your God dwell in Zion my holy hill now my shorthand way of talking about that is magnifying God as God mm. and and I think that's the essence of worship now, in the Old Testament, and Joel's an example of this, you know, different things are highlighted. There's a sacrificial system we're introduced to in Leviticus um, and also the the offering system, um, parts of which are to make grain offerings and drink offerings. Um, now, all of that is to prepare the way for Jesus coming, who is the ultimate sacrifice. And, and then the New Testament, and particularly Hebrews, helps us understand that now that Jesus has come, he is the one true perfect sacrifice. Um, and so now the way in which we worship God is transformed. Um, yeah. So no accident we come to, you know, Hebrews 10, um, uh, which talks about the place of meeting together as being part of that. I think we underplay that sometimes. And then Hebrews 12, you know, talks, sorry, Romans 12 talks about our, our act of worship, um, uh, which is to live holy and pleasing lives to God. So it's not a restrict kind of thing to certain events or it, it, it's very holistic, very widespread. Mm. But behind both of those, the essence is the same. And yeah. that, so my shorthand, you know, magnifying God as God, um, recognizing he's the creator of the universe, not just in name, but but also in deed, in action, um, with our whole being. Yeah, so changed in form, but still the same in essence, yeah. Yeah. We'll keep coming on. We've got a, a bunch of questions that have come in about the whole idea of lament. So we'll dig into a few of these. Someone's just asked, uh, Raj, is it enough? Is it enough to just lament and mourn? And I guess what's behind that question, I wonder if this person is thinking in the face of disaster and sin, you know, what are the other possible responses? Is, is repentance part of the picture as well? Yeah. Why is it just lamenting that's highlighted here? Yeah, well, look, I think, thank you again. You know, as I, as I said, um, as we open the podcast and try to summarize Joel 1, um, Joel 1 goes on to Joel 2 and then Joel 3. And so it's not the whole picture. So, you know, it is not enough to just lament and mourn. Um, and that said, in Joel 1, I think there is a significant place for lamenting and mourning. Um, that helps us un not just understand, but engage with and and 
reflect on the crisis that's at hand. Mm. Um, the fact that people don't know the Lord their God and don't treat the Lord their God as God. Um, uh, and so lamenting for the judgment of God that comes as a result. And also, in the case of Joel 1, the inability of people to worship God with grain and drink offerings. Um, that is a starting point, but but also it's not the ending point. So, so I do like the question because mm. the question propels us into Joel 2 and then into Joel 3. And Joel, Joel 2, we're going to, you mentioned repentance, we're going to see this, this uh, imperative here to return to the Lord. And then in Joel 3, we, well, we're, we're, Joel 2, we're going to see the Spirit being poured out as well, um, which takes us to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Um, yeah, so, so look, it, it is not just, sorry, it is not enough to just lament and mourn. Um, and at the same time, if we let Joel 1 sit a little bit, I think it does just get us thinking more about what is the place of lamenting and mourning. Yeah, so it's not the full story, but it is the starting point. And that's definitely worth reflecting on. And we'll keep reflecting as we ask a couple more questions. I'll come on to, to this one now. Someone's uh, sent in a reflection or a comment. Um, it's a long one, so I'll try and summarize what this person's texted in. This person's wondering, um, I guess that idea of lament, uh, is it more than just sadness that's in view? So thinking about the people in Joel's time, they've had this plague, they've had their brain wiped out. This person's saying for them, it'd be more than just sadness that they can't worship. There'd be fear of starvation and uncertainty. There'd be this fear that, you know, their livelihood is gone, um, wondering about the disaster to come. Yeah, this person's wondering, is mourning more about sort of, you know, the the, the anguish and the fear that they would face in that sort of circumstance. Yeah. What would you have to say to that comment? Oh, I, I really appreciate the reflection that's here. And I think, um, uh, I think I want to say it's both and, mm. um, and, and even then take a little bit further as well. So certainly the, there is the, the image given to us is the destruction of livelihood is a serious thing. Um, and then it, it does move on and just, out of all of the things it could focus on, it, where it does focus both in chapter one um, in a couple of different places, and I also think a little bit later on, is is this inability of the people to worship God. Mm. And I think on Sunday I tried just, I found it quite challenging and maybe it's just me, but I just thought, I, I think for myself, I would see those circumstances as excusing me. Um, whereas I just was particularly challenged with the people grieving their inability, um, which is tied up with sadness, which is tied up with anguish, which is tied up with fear, and all of those things are good things. But even then, it's not just the emotion of it, um, because, you know, verse 14, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So it's not just an internal kind of feeling it's 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 more than that it's something that then it's grounded there but it then takes us into some very very deep and potentially costly action yeah uh, really helpful it's, it's clearly a rich and fully old thing so great that that question asker could help us drive into that um i want to pick up on what you just said so verse 14 yeah it talks about the holy fast someone expected in asking what is the role of fasting and lament and would you suggest fasting as a discipline for us to practice uh, there's a very thoughtful question from no doubt a very thoughtful person. Um, 
Yeah, look, I before we came on, Jack, you and I had a bit of a discussion about this because it's interesting. We both said the same thing to each other, and that is, it's not something either of us have um, um, thought very deeply about in the past. So, so just some some things that occur to me in this in this category, and I I welcome ongoing engagement on this issue. Um, so, so one is, you know, in the New Testament. I don't think we are commanded to fast. Now, I want to be careful in saying that not to be like a Pharisee, you know, because we're not commanded, therefore it's, you know, it's a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. I think fasting, like many other disciplines introduced to us in, in God's word, um, can be very helpful disciplines. So, so yes, it's not commanded on the one hand, but, you know, it... it on the other hand, it may be a very, very helpful thing. Look, in the current COVID lockdown, it would certainly save a lot of money, you know, fast as well. <laughs> um, but, Fasting for economic benefit, yeah, there's, there's no yeah, well, angle there. Yeah. But look, here, the, the reason is not economic benefit. It's, <laughs> expression of, it's an expression of lament. Um, and, and on Sunday, I just put the question out there. I really was racking my brains last week to think about what does lament and mourning and grieving, um, observing God's judgment, observing that people have wandered away from God, observing people no longer magnify God as God, what 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 would an appropriate form of lament look like? Mm. And I I think for me that's the question I I end up thinking about. Um, and I personally, I go and I think, well, maybe, you know, fasting or something else would be appropriate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so I don't see fasting as in the New Testament. Um, I think, Jack, you actually made the comment. It's more in the Old Testament. We see fasting connected to lament in the New Testament. If anything, we see fasting more connected to prayer. Um, and at the same time, behind prayer may well be lament. Yeah, so Yeah, I think you have a you have a complex of issues there. So I think in the Old Testament it is generally connected with prayer and lament together. Because yeah, one of the things you do when you're lamenting is you cry out to God and you say, How long, O Lord? And you ask me for deliverance, that kind of thing. Um and I often think of um two Samuel twelve when um after the the Bathsheba incident and David is, you know, begging God that his little um child who's been born would survive. Um, and God takes him in response to his sin. And while the child's alive, he's fasting and weeping and crying out to God, you know, um, yeah, let this little little child live. So you have this fasting there, it's accompanying prayer and it's accompanying lament. The two things go together. And I mean, you get a you get a little hint of that in the New Testament. Like um, I think one of the key texts that's worth wrestling with as you think about how it fits into the Christian life is um, the bit in, it's in all the Synoptic Gospels, but Mark chapter 2, from verse 18, um, I'll read a little few verses. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And people are thinking, look, the other guys, they're people are fasting, but Jesus's friends don't, like what's going on? Verse 19, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. And the question there is, what is Jesus talking about? The day that the bridegroom will be taken away. And I guess the main options are either this is Jesus talking about his death 
And so saying when Jesus dies, that's going to be the time to, to weep and mourn and therefore fast. Or is it talking about uh, the, the time when Jesus is taken up into heaven and, you know, the age that we have as we wait for him to return is the time for fasting. So people who want to argue for a strong place of fasting in the Christian life will take that light of you and say, this is about, you know, Jesus has been taken away from us. So yeah, now it's appropriate for us to fast. I don't think that's yeah. the way to take it though. I think that as you look at the rest of the New Testament, fasting almost disappears. Like it's after the gospel, it's almost never mentioned. There are a few places in Acts where the church is praying and fasting. And in that circumstance, it seems to be less of a lament. Like the start of Acts 13, the, the elders in Antioch are praying and fasting before they send out Saul and Barnabas on their mission. And there's no hint of mourning there. It's kind of praying and fasting and fervently, you know, bringing this decision to God. I take it that Jesus is saying, yeah, those three days between the death and resurrection, that's the worst time in history for the disciples. So yeah, that's, that's a time to fast and cry out to God. But now that Jesus is alive and, and he's with us by the spirit, like we haven't been abandoned. That's something that the gospels make loud and clear. Like Jesus is still with us. He's with us to the end of the age, as he says at the end of Matthew. So I think that we're no longer in the time for that compulsory lamenting fasting because Jesus is alive and he's with us. And, you know, he's promised that the, the victory is assured. So for all those reasons, I don't think fasting is, ne is a necessity in the Christian yeah. life, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, but it can still be a good thing. And that's, you, you know, like we said, the, the church still do it occasionally. So, yeah, I, I think that it's something that you may well, you know, someone listening out there, it's, it's, it's a spiritual discipline that we don't talk about a lot. That doesn't mean it's worthless. Like, it, it's, it's worth having a go. Like, there's something about that experience of hunger as we seek to earnestly seek, you know, God's favor as we pray to him. Like, it can be a good thing. So, yeah, don't discount it, I'd say. The other thing I've heard about fasting, Jack, is if one fasts, fasts for long enough, they're going to come close to God really quickly. That's right. It's one surefire way to go near to the Lord. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, we'll keep going. A um, couple more questions for us to touch on. Uh, someone's texted in, while it is right to grieve and mourn during a tragedy, is it possible that we are focusing too much on sadness in the current circumstances, as in COVID? and not on its foreshadowing of God's coming judgment and the need of salvation for those around us. Thanks, Jack. I, I appreciate this question. And one possibility is um, my comments on Sunday may have been heard to be doing that, that is focusing on COVID rather than the coming of God's judgment and need for salvation. Um, so this is just one of the values of having the extras and having questions come in. Uh, because it just allows me the opportunity to say it was not my intention to focus on COVID mm. um, and, and very much Joel 1 does not have COVID in mind. It has God's judgment in mind. Um, and then it moves on to victory and it has salvation in mind. And I think a high point of Joel is um, the end of chapter 2, which then is picked up in on the day of Pentecost on the Jerusalem temple steps um, as as salvation is being heard in people's different languages so I, I think I just want to affirm what, you know, underlies this question. Um, I, if anything, I think COVID, you know, as it's disrupted our routines, um, they're, they're just little moments in life that are opportunities to reflect. And so although Joel 1 doesn't have COVID in mind, I do think the opportunity to reflect in lockdown and change routines and slowing down of, you know, all of the complexities of family life um it does allow us to reflect on those very things even more so mm. so yeah jack do you want to add to that at all mate yeah i think i mean 
this question, I think there's something perceptive there. Like this touches on everything we we're talking about before, like, you know, God and disasters today and what they're meant to be communicating to us. Like COVID is something from the Lord. Like, you know, viruses are not the one little element of creation that are outside God's control. Like I take it that the, the pandemic we're experiencing is this thing that God has sovereignly, uh, you know, he is in control over. Um, and like we said before, like, you know, you could speculate about, you know, is this God's punishment to us in some particular, you know, act of sin that someone has done? And I've heard all sorts of people out there in the world kind of speculate on that. Like lots of people saying, oh, like, you know, was it that we were getting just too, you know, too busy in life? So God's brought this thing to curtail our busyness and force us to stay at home and recover, you know, family life and that kind of thing. And like that's, you know, you could point to that as something that, the pandemic has done but maybe that's only true in one particular pocket of you know affluent western society like you look at other places in the world where you know in places like myanmar and indonesia where it's just freaking havoc and you know thousands and thousands of people dying like i don't think you could have that same kind of lesson in it for everyone um i think it's better to say this is just part and parcel of life you know in a world where human beings sin but all these things you know whether it's a pandemic or a tsunami or an earthquake or whatever it is like these are the things that tell us judgment is coming uh these are acts of god's kind of warning i mean they are judgment in themselves but they're also the warning that there is a greater judgment to come and like the tower of siloam this is god's call to repent so i think that it's worth us thinking yeah the fact that we're experiencing this pandemic should be a shot across the bow for anyone any proud human being who resists the lord it's a call to turn back to him before it's too late i think is that sound fair it does sound very fair mate I, I got nothing to add and i i am conscious of our time actually so yeah thank you yeah we're gonna jump on to i guess the, the last sort of set of questions there's a few that we can kind of bring together here but someone's texted in aren't we supposed to be joyful in jesus so is lamenting really an appropriate response for new testament christians when we are called to always be joyful in christ along a similar line someone's texted in james uh, the verse from james chapter one uh, verse three count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness yeah what would you say to that raj you know aren't we just meant to be you know rejoice in the lord i say it again rejoice yeah thank you. thank you i think this question i did um at one of the congregations it all blurs for me after four services on a sunday but um Look, I, I think coming into this, I've just flicked that over to James where the um, the last question was, you know, quoting, consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And it, it goes on. Mm. And I was talking to another very thoughtful person about this the other day. And um, 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 they just made the point, for us, we think of joy in the category of happiness. Um, and, and the point they made to me was actually, that's not quite biblical joy. Mm. You know, biblical joy is, is a far, far broader concept. And so we see here, um, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I wonder if that's, that's just one part of the answer to, to these couple of questions um, that we can actually think about um, um, times of difficulty, times of suffering, 
which is the ground for times of laments, times of mourning, times of grief, in a broader context of biblical joy, which means, yes, those times are very real that we go through, and nonetheless, uh, we're able to, to take joy in knowing the victory that is coming in Christ and even the assurance of salvation that we have. So Joel, once again, it's going to go on to those very things. Um, and I think Jesus, we saw him in the world, and I talked about the Garden of Gethsemane. We, I talked about the um, uh, him weeping over Jerusalem. There's other occasions he wept as well. And they're very real. And and I, I for me, you know, there's occasions, um, there's occasions in which... I think we have both of those things happening on, you know, going on, mm. uh, both, both having the lament because we're seeing God's judgment in the world, but also even within that, we can we can just still rest on God's on knowing God's salvation in Christ and the victory that's coming. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think it's easy to kind of make can't command to rejoice a flippant thing. It's just it's hard times, but rejoice. You know, you'll be fine. Um, this path from lament to joy, I think, is a richer way that we're called to experience both the trials and the, the assurance that God brings. So yeah, thank you for that. Uh, we, we are out of time. Uh, before we wrap up, could you give us a very brief snapshot? Where are we headed this week uh, and the Sunday coming up? Look, this week, um, Joel chapter 2, we're, we're going from Joel 2, I think we're going to finish on... Oh, that's not Joel, that's James. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're looking on the first section of Joel 2 that continues looking at the crisis idea from a different angle. So I mentioned earlier the army's kind of image comes. Um, and also it, it the, the prominence of this category, Day of the Lord, that we've also talked about today is is very much there. So so we're not quite coming to the victory yet in Joel 2. Um, and, and once again, I do want us to sit just in those issues a little bit more and tease those out a bit more as the Bible does. Um, and so I think it's going to be another really profitable time. And from the questions coming up, maybe just reflecting on some things we don't often spend some time reflecting on. So that's where we're heading. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. We're looking forward to being present with you as we meet online this coming Sunday. We look forward to being with you then. Bye for now.